I would invite you to turn with me in God's Word to Psalm 84. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's found on page 493. Psalm 84. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord, our hearts long to know you more. As we think of the coming year, our desire is to grow in our love and affection for the risen Lord Jesus all the more. May you be pleased to continue to use our worship services toward that end, growing us in our knowledge and love for Christ our Lord as we persevere toward that day of rest, our heavenly home that awaits us in our risen and reigning Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand together, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. To the choir master, according to the Gatith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even a sparrow finds a home, and a swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The word of our God, you may be seated. Perhaps you've had that experience of being away from home for a time and yet wanting nothing more than being back, being back in the familiar comforts of your surroundings, the comfort of your own bed and around those who love you and those who you know. Maybe it was going away as a kid to summer camp for an extended time. Maybe it's being away at college for a semester. Even a lengthy, restful vacation is not always as restful as you hope when you're away from the familiar. There's a sense of restlessness when we're living in a place where we don't really belong. And even if you rarely venture out, there is still a restlessness that resides within the hearts of each one of us, something within the very core of our being that tells us that we were made for something more than this earthly life, this present age filled with trials, disappointments, temptations, sin, and more. And the reason this is true for each one of us, this inward restlessness, if you will, is because we were created by a loving God to be in the presence of that God. The purpose of our very existence is to know the Lord as our dwelling place. One of the most famous lines from church history is from St. Augustine, late 4th, early 5th century, who wrote in his confessions that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. 
And that sense of restlessness, what we could call an identity as a pilgrim people, is really what the psalmist is capturing here in Psalm 84 as he longs for the Lord God. Now, when the Lord brought His covenant people, Israel, into the land of promise, He established several annual feast days in which the people were to travel to the holy hill of Jerusalem, where they were to offer their sacrifices, worship, and praise to the Lord. And so, sort of woven into their very identity is this reality that they are a traveling people, constantly on the move toward another destination, a place of final rest. Now, as great as the land of promise may have been, this was to teach them that there is a greater heavenly city that awaits God's people a city that they were to keep the gaze of their hearts and minds fixed upon. And that's really no different for for us. As those redeemed in Christ Jesus, we know that there is a final day of rest that is coming. And when we arrive, when we make it to that heavenly home, the realization will dawn upon us that this is what we were created for. This is where we belong. This is truly our home where I can finally rest here in the dwelling place of my great God and King. And this is where I think a psalm like this can be of help to us to learn how to live with this heavenly gaze as we too, as pilgrim people, press on toward that glorious day. Now, this psalm can be divided nicely into three sections or three stanzas. And what we find in each of those three stanzas is this key word, blessed. We see it in verses 4, 5, and 12. And so as we move this morning through each of these stanzas, let's see how this repetition of blessedness in this psalm serves sort of as three hinges upon which a door turns. The first stanza, verses 1 through 4, captures the longing of the psalmist's heart. And so this is our first point this morning longing to dwell with God. Now, we have no idea where the psalmist is when he composes this psalm, but clearly he is somewhere away from the dwelling place of God, away from the temple, away from the courtyards of the Lord, away from that holy hill of God where he dwells in intimate covenantal presence with his people. But though away from the Lord in terms of physical proximity, Clearly, his heart's desire, his inward longing is for the courts of the Lord, as we see in verse 2. Now, what does it mean to long for the courts of God? Unless you were a priest assigned with particular temple responsibilities, the closest that you could get to that intimate presence of the Lord would be to enter into the courtyards where sacrifices would be given over to the priests and laid upon the bronze altar. It's in the courtyard that the people of God would gather collectively to offer prayers to the Lord and praise to His name. Of course, it's not so much the physical structure itself that the psalmist longs for, but it's the occupant of that place. It's the Lord God of mercy and grace. He wants to be with the Lord. He wants to be alongside the people of God, but something is keeping him from being there. Now, the fact that we don't know what it is exactly that was keeping the psalmist from being where his heart desired to lead him actually helps with universal application of this psalm. 
You can imagine that this psalm has been of great comfort and encouragement to the people of God throughout church history, to those who have found themselves in times of great persecution or trial, perhaps even imprisonment awaiting execution because of their profession of faith in Christ. And even down to our own time, when we experience the type of struggles that the psalmist goes through in his longing to be with the Lord, perhaps it's a season of restlessness in our own lives, wandering or feeling somewhat displaced or discouraged with our circumstances. There truly is a wide range of applications of this psalm for God's people. And so with his entire self, as he puts it, with heart and flesh, he longs to be with the Lord. It's such a profound yearning that it's almost as though words fail to capture this deep, deep longing for the presence of God as he faints to be with the Lord. Now, our call to worship this morning was from Psalm 42, which somewhat mirrors the experience of the psalmist here. Is the deer pants for flowing waters, so my soul pants for you, O God. When can I go and meet with God and be with Him in His presence? Now, this is not just an ordinary, everyday longing, like the longing that I might experience when I have to drive all the way from Marco's Pizza to my house with the delicious smell filling my car and my mouth watering, a desire that will soon find its satisfaction and a smell that's not so appeasing the next morning when I get in my car to go to work. (laughs) This, rather, is a deep, heartfelt core of his being longing, which sees the Lord as the only means of true and lasting satisfaction. A number of years ago, a friend of mine who was out deer hunting told me about this story that he encountered. Now, I imagine deer hunters are a lot like fishermen and that the stories become more and more elaborate as time goes on. But I like to think that there's some level of truth to this story. As he tells it, he found an ideal spot behind some downed trees with a stream not too far away. As he settled in, he heard a fellow hunter's gun go off somewhere far in the distance. Sometime later, a buck came bursting from the forest, heaving, panting heavily. He was so startled that he jumped to his feet, rifle still in hand, and made eyes with a deer across the stream. And even though the deer saw him, The panting was so great, the longing so deep, that he stooped to place his head in the stream. And he immediately thought of Psalm 42. This is the all-encompassing longing that the psalmist has for the Lord. Everything else in life is secondary behind this one pursuit. And I think the psalmist's example can be a great challenge for us to consider in our own lives. What should this type of longing look like in my own life? Do I find myself perhaps quickly dismissing the experience of the psalmist? He's a more emotive man from a different time of history and a different culture so long ago. I'm a Reformed Presbyterian living in the West. Am I really supposed to experience a deep, heartfelt, emotional longing such as this? Do I have a passion for God's glory above my own? Do I love my Redeemer above all other pursuits? Do I love the Lord Jesus more than I love myself? And then in verse 3, this vivid image comes to mind for him, which further stirs the aching of his heart. Let's look there again. 
Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And so perhaps here what the psalmist is recalling is a previous experience when he made it to the holy hill of the Lord and walked those steps and entered through the courtyard, seeing the tabernacle and the bronze altar with sacrifices being laid there, with smoke arising before the Lord as a pleasing aroma to Him. And He experiences this joy of finally arriving. And perhaps His eye is drawn to the wall of the temple itself, and He sees a sparrow who has made her nest tucked away in safety, literally in the structure of the temple itself. A small bird who would dare to make her nest and nurse her young with the flames of judgment just nearby. And this serves to stir the heart of the psalmist toward wonder and worship. The Lord God is not a harsh or demanding or unreasonable God. Yes, His wrath is justly directed toward us because of our rebellion against Him, but He has provided a way for sin to be removed and for us to enter into favor with Him. It is through the atoning sacrifice of another that intimacy with the living God can be restored. And the fact that the Lord permits this sparrow to live in this place is tangible evidence to Him of the Lord's mercy and kindness and love. This little sparrow becomes a metaphor for him of the remarkable fact that there is safety in the presence of the Lord through his provision, through the means of his provision. And so if this bird can find a home here, then certainly the servants of the Lord, certainly his covenant people can come and experience peace with a living God. This is the God who calls us to himself. This is the God that his heart longs for. And this heartfelt longing in this first stanza sort of culminates there in verse 4 with the first blessing that we find in the psalm. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Now here he's sort of imagining the privilege that others have, somewhat envying this sustained experience of being with the Lord in such intimate closeness. Oh, to be among those who dwell in the house of the Lord, who sing forevermore your wondrous praise. These are the truly blessed ones. Now, we might wonder, who exactly is the psalmist talking about? Who has this blessing of dwelling in God's house? And all of the places throughout the Old Testament where I read about the structure of the tabernacle and the temple, all the dimensions and the furnishings that go there. I don't recall a a separate little annex or narthex or vestibule where the priests set up cots and live in proximity to the Lord. I don't remember reading of a cot between the table of lampstand and the showbread. So what exactly does it mean? Who is it that has such a sustained experience of ever praising His name? Now, the priests were certainly privileged, but in a sense, we could say that the only ones who have such an experience of dwelling in a sustained manner before the Lord are the glorified saints in heaven. 
These are the ones who dwell in the presence of the Holy One, ever singing praises to His name. I love that line from Augustus Toplady's hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone. More happy, more blessed, but not more secure are the glorified spirits in heaven. Now, this season of year can be one of great joy in many ways as we gather with family and friends, but it can be so difficult for those who have lost loved ones. And one of the greatest comforts is that those who are in Christ Jesus, though away from the body, are present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. It is the glorified saints in heaven who are with their beloved Savior, ever gazing upon His radiant glory, ever singing praise to His wonderful name. They are truly the blessed ones as they experience the reality of Romans chapter 8, that there is nothing that can take them from the hand of their Savior, nothing that can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. And soon it will be me, and soon it will be you. We will be counted among the blessed in the presence of the Lord if our faith is in Christ alone. And doesn't your heart long to be with them as you think of those who have preceded you into this glorious place? It's not just a longing to see those whom you love who have preceded you there, but even more than that, it's a longing to be with the Lord Himself in a sustained vision of His holiness, never to be broken again. Derek Kidner writes, the general disposition of the exile should be a longing for that final rest. Isn't that a great description of what should be true of every believer in Christ Jesus? We are in exile, while the general disposition of the heart should be a longing for that rest. Well, as we move on to the next stanza in verses 5 through 8, the scene within the mind of the psalmist shifts a bit as he thinks here about the traveler who is making his way to that holy hill of the Lord. And he praises the Lord God for giving strength for the journey ahead. And so our second point this morning might be strength from the Lord for that which lies ahead. Strength from the Lord for those days that are before us. Now, there are many ways in which psalms can be used in the life of the believer. One of the ways that we can use the psalms devotionally is to think of them as an instruction manual for Christian living. If the goal of the Christian life is to bring mind and heart, that inner man, more and more in line with the truth of God's Word, if maturity in the Christian life is learning to live according to God's promises, not merely what seems right to me in my own reasoning, if I am to learn to walk by faith and not by sight, then as I'm reading or studying any particular psalm, I ought to ask myself, how does this psalm help me toward that end, toward greater conformity to the Lord my God? And so in the second stanza, the psalmist helps us in that area by capturing some of the experiences of the psalmist as he is en route to the house of God to that place of rest. There are dangers along the way. There is suffering that is to be endured. There are uncertainties on that path and trials that we will all face. The life of the traveler is not an easy one, 
the life of the Christian is filled with hardship. But even in the midst of weariness and fatigue, the psalmist tells us that there is strength to be found in the Lord, verse 5. And it's here that we come to the second occurrence of this key word, blessed. Blessed are the ones who find their strength in the Lord. Blessed are the ones whose heart is set upon Zion, that dwelling place of God. I think the privilege of every parent is to make their child do something they don't really want to do. And I think it's every parent's prerogative at some point in the life of that child to make them ride a horse. I remember that experience. We grew up in the Southwest, so this may have been on some sort of a dude ranch or family camp. I don't really remember, but I remember my horse being old uh, with a sagging back and gray hair. I thought, well, this will be easy. And we got in line and went down the path, single file, and it seemed like every direction that we went, the horse was turning his muzzle to get back to the stable, back to the place where he could graze or be with his other horse friends. And almost like an inward compass, he seemed to know the way back in whatever direction we were going. And finally, when we made that last turn to go back, my horse suddenly outpaced all the others. I think they were all used to it as they just kind of moved out of his way because there was no slowing him down at that point. One commentator that I read put it like this, is your heart mapped out to take you to the Lord God? Do you know something of this spirit-given homing instinct on how to reach him? And I think we learn to develop this homing instinct toward him as the spirit subdues our wills to his word more and more. And we find strength for the journey ahead in the knowledge that we will most certainly appear before him. Verse 7, we find comfort in the fact that the end result is something that is fixed and certain, regardless of what hardships may remain for us. I know where I am going. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, I am going to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to be with me, that where I am, you will be also. So you might ask yourself, how does the Word of God function in my life day to day? Perhaps I'm disciplined at spending time reading the Word, but do I take the truth of Scripture with me throughout my day? Do I take those promises and truly dwell upon them and make them my own? Am I drawing upon His Word as a lamp for my feet and a light for my path? And along the way, along that journey, the Lord shows Himself to be faithful with us. And we don't know if this valley of Baca in verse 6, literally translated as a low place of weeping, we don't know if this is an actual location or if this is an arid region that the Israelite would be familiar with upon their, travelers, upon their travels to Jerusalem. Or perhaps this is just a general catch-all phrase meant to capture the season of difficulty. But the point is to see this as a way to illustrate the pilgrim's journey. There are seasons of great struggle along the way. There may be times in our own life in which we feel spiritually barren or dry. There may be much weeping and hardship along the way, but you are never abandoned by the Lord. Now, you might think in 
the desert wilderness. Imagine being there. There are only really two sources of life-giving water, either from deep below or seasonal rains that may come from above. And the psalmist seems to capitalize upon that imagery here to make this barren place a place of springs, as he puts it there in verse 6, simply has, I think, the connotation of, by faith, drawing upon the promises of God's Word, almost as a deep well, storing up the truth of God's Word that we might draw upon it when we go through those seasons of dryness, choosing not to be driven by circumstances, choosing not to be driven by our fleeting and fluctuating emotions, but as we allow the Word of God and His majesty to prevail, we are pulling up that life-giving truth as deep wells within. The other source of refreshment there in verse 6 is the early rain, which captures another way in which the Lord in His goodness provides for His children. In addition to drawing upon those promises as from an underground spring, the Lord may, through His life-giving providence, send life-giving measures of refreshment for the soul. But the point here is that the Lord is with us to give us exactly what we need. He shows His tenderness to us. He makes His loving presence known to us through the life-giving water of His Word in which He promises never to forsake us, in which He pledges never to abandon. And so the springs along the way or the early rains that may fall, these are images of the Lord's tenderness assurances that the Lord will provide what we need to make it through the hardships and barren seasons of life. Now, to go from strength to strength in verse 7 is to stack promises one on top of the other. Sinclair Ferguson writes, a mind well stocked with the knowledge of Scripture is a great preservative from discouragement. It's like a well-stocked pharmacy in which remedies are always at hand. Strength upon strength, promise upon promise, we grow in spiritual strength as we stock up on the Word of God. It may be like that broken down but tried and true horse. The closer that you get to the goal, the stronger the pull upon your heart and the greater the zeal to press on. When that destination is in sight, it's like a renewed vigor to endure. No matter how many years you may have left upon this earth, keep that destination in sight as a beloved child of God. One of the books that we recently completed in our Friday morning men's study is a book by Jerry Bridges entitled Respectable Sins, in which he addresses those more subtle sins of the heart that we tend to give ourselves a pass on because they don't seem quite as destructive or as egregious as other things. Bridges makes the point that the sin of ungodliness is the sin that is foundational to all others. And by ungodliness, he means the failure on our part to live out of a conscious awareness of the presence of God, living daily life without reference to Him and without thought to the Lord's glory, living our daily lives without an acknowledgement of our dependence upon Him. Bridges writes, our goal in the pursuit of godliness 
should be to grow more in our conscious awareness that every moment of our lives is lived in the presence of God, that we are responsible to Him and dependent on Him. This goal would include a growing desire to please Him and glorify Him in the most ordinary activities of life. And so, like the psalmist, do you know the presence of the Lord with you? Do you know His care and comfort? Do you believe His Word, and do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you want to know Him more, growing in strength, strength upon strength? As we think of this comfort for the journey ahead, it's not so much that the path may be easy, but it's that the Lord is with us, giving strength to the feeble, giving us refreshment when we thirst, and the promise of meeting Him at the end. I don't think we want to skip too rapidly over the comfort that we find there in verse 8. Just as you might load up in your backpack for an afternoon hike if you're up vacationing in the mountains, making sure that you have plenty of supplies for the afternoon, we load up for those days which lie ahead for us, loading up on the truth of God's Word and loading up on the comfort of prayer. And verse 8, I think, is interesting with these imperatives. Hear or listen to my prayer. Heed or give ear, O God of Jacob, God of Israel, God of the covenant. Now, it's not so much the psalmist that is telling God what to do. This is not like a spoiled child might scream at his parents to listen to him. That would be presumptuous at best. But it's a declaration of confidence because of who God is and what He has previously promised to do. It's more, I know you hear my prayer, O God. I know that you give ear to my cry because you are the faithful, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. The believer in Christ can know for certain that our prayers are heard. Whether we feel like it or not, we can have the comfort that the Lord hears the cries of His people. And finally, our third stanza in verses 9 through 12, we find the psalmist building toward the final blessing that we come to in verse 12, the blessing of trusting in the Lord. And so we might put our third point as the blessing of God Himself. Now, if you were developing lessons for a children's Sunday school class, designing perhaps a handout to give the children to color at the end of a lesson on Psalm 84, you might create three panels upon that handout. The heartfelt longing of the psalmist that we saw in stage one, the perilous journey through the wilderness that we saw in stage two, and finally his arrival in the presence of the Lord and the great joy of being with God and the joy of being with the people of the Lord. And this would be a truly valuable lesson for the children to learn because this is a snapshot of the life of every believer in Christ Jesus as we seek to trust in Him. Now, perhaps as we read this psalm this morning, you've felt a bit of tension in your own life. I know I have as I've thought about this psalm over the last couple of weeks because here's our dilemma. Frankly, I lack the passion of the psalmist. I lack His all-consuming focus upon the Lord. When I consider my own heart 
if I'm honest with myself, I'm easily distracted. I don't have this sustained vision of my heavenly home the way in which I want to and the way in which I ought. Instead, too often I find myself overwhelmed by circumstances, distraught by the enticements, distracted by the enticements of the world or distraught by minor offenses. I get easily frustrated when people don't do the things that I want them to do. And when I go through struggles in life, I don't draw upon the promises of God as I ought. I don't have this all-encompassing focus upon the Lord's glory, but instead I tend to obsess over my own desires and my own agenda. And so how do I reconcile the experience of the psalmist with my own shortcomings? How can his deep longing for the glory of God actually be an encouragement to me and not something that just overwhelms or deflates me because I'm not where he is. Well, I think the key to the psalm is there in verse 9. You, O God, are our shield. You are our defender. You are our protector. You are a shield from all of those false accusations of the evil one. You are a shield even when my conscience rises up against me and brings accusations or points out weaknesses and failures. And you are a shield not because of something inherent within me. It's not look upon my face because it was our sin in the garden that rightly banished us from the presence of God in which we were no longer permitted to see his face. But instead, his confidence is that the Lord will look with favor upon his anointed, upon his Messiah, upon the glorious one who will come from him. Jesus is the one who had a holy obsession for the will of his Father in heaven. Jesus is the one whose heart and flesh always sang for joy for the courts of the Lord. Jesus is the one who lived not by bread alone, but every word that came from the mouth of God. Jesus is the one who said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is the one who prayed without ceasing. Jesus is the one who went from strength to strength, trusting in the word of his God all the way to the cross. And it was strength that held him there where my redemption was secured. He is the anointed one whom the psalmist hopes in. And it is through his own righteousness that I can find favor with the Father because of my union with Christ. Palmer Robertson writes, Only as the Lord looks on the face of their anointed can the people experience the peace they seek, which will be found at the Lord's permanent dwelling place in the temple of Jerusalem. You see, that temple was provisional. It was temporary. It was not permanent, but pointed to the one who is. Jesus Christ is our dwelling place. Jesus is the temple who was destroyed and raised victorious on the third day. And because he has favor with God through the anointed that enables the psalmist to proclaim, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I would rather be assigned the most menial of tasks than dwell 
in the perceived comfort or indulgence of the wicked. We live in a society which spends billions of dollars a year trying to distract us, lying to us, trying to convince us that life is nothing more than accumulation, the accumulation of possessions, the accumulation of experiences, the accumulation of philosophical insights that only feed our proud hearts, the accumulation of accolades, recognition, feelings of happiness, leisure, pleasure, and more. You could think of the best that this world has to offer, but what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? And isn't this one of our great sins, longing for the things of this world rather than longing for the glory of God, rather than panting, thirsting, fainting for Him, as it were. We pursue the pleasures of a decaying age. We sell ourselves on what? Riches, power, fame, pleasure, comfort, things that are enslaving, but all things that will perish when this world comes to an end. Instead, every imaginable good is found in Him. Every imaginable good is found with Him. Every lasting good comes from Him. There is nothing that compares with our God. Now, in every psalm, the psalmist dwells upon some attribute or series of attributes of the Lord. And as he meditates upon those attributes of God, it serves to strengthen his soul or perhaps correct him where he has gone astray. Someone has remarked that this last section of the psalm is like a box where sweets are compacted as he savors and meditates and slowly dwells upon some of the attributes of the Lord. Perhaps you get one of those boxes of assorted chocolates around Christmas season. I like the ones that don't tell you what's inside. And you want to savor those things, not only because they're a special gift, but because of the delicious nature of them. Every little bite, you draw it out to make it last as long as possible. The psalmist savors such rich truths about the Lord's nature. Verse 11, the Lord is a sun and he is a shield. As a sun, he is light. As a sun, he is the giver of life itself. His presence is one of comfort and joy and strength, dispelling the darkness of this world and warming the coldness of my heart. As shield, he is a shelter in the turmoil of uncertainty. He protects us when we are tempted. He guards us when we're falsely accused or, again, when the conscience plagues us. Think of it. If you have a never-fading sun, if you have an impenetrable shield about you, then there is nothing for you to fear in this life. He is the answer to all of the fears of this world. And there is still more. Verse 11, he is the bestower of favor and honor. He delights in his children and cherishes us as he draws us close to himself. And still more, he withholds no good from those who walk uprightly. Now, certainly in and of ourselves, we flounder and we're full of weakness. We don't always walk uprightly as we should. But again, it's the union that we share with the anointed one. It's the union that we share with Christ Jesus who is upright. And because of our union with Him, all that is 
All that comes our way from our Father is good. And He is, in verse 12, the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord preeminent. He is strength where we are weak. He is the Almighty God, always on our side. And so we will emerge victorious. He is trustworthy, and He is forever true. These are the attributes of the Lord that are worth meditating upon. And so verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing praises to your name. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. And verse 12, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the vision of the Christian life that I hope and pray we will each cultivate in our lives in the coming year. We trust in the one whom we have not seen. We walk by faith as we believe the promises of his word. Now, this is utter foolishness to the world around us, a world which only walks by sight and not by faith. But we have a higher allegiance, and we look at the things of this world through new eyes, through new lenses which help us to see the glories of what await us in Christ Jesus And this is what serves to spur us on to respond in greater trust of our God. One day we will arrive in the courtyards of His glorious throne. And when we arrive, all will be so glorious, all will be so radiant, a glory so splendid that all pain and heartache and sorrow will be a thing of the past. Old Testament scholar Alec Moiter, who went to be with the Lord just a few years ago, wrote, as soon as we see the face of Jesus, we shall know as never before how much we are loved, how fully we have been forgiven, how great and endless is our security in His presence. If you're here this morning and you No, only that inward restlessness, though you try to fill your life with distractions, the enticements of this world, perhaps believing those lies that have been fed to you. Jesus says very simply, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. And for those who belong to the Lord, as children of the living God, nurture within your own mind and heart a greater vision of the majesty and the splendor of God. He is always much greater than you can imagine. He is always more patient than you could ever dream. He is always more tender. He is always more faithful. He is always more loving and more good and more powerful than you could ever ascribe to Him. And as the greatness of our loving God fills our minds, We will be filled less and less with the foolishness of this world. As the heart is taken captive to Christ and filled with a greater love for Him and His glorious name, there will be less and less room for the futile affections of this age. Do you trust in the Lord? Do you trust in Him for the salvation of your soul? Do you trust in Him to guide you in the coming year? to provide what you need for the trials ahead. As you trust in Him, verse 12, there are blessings forevermore.
may the Lord be pleased in the lives of his dear children to continue to work his good in our lives in the coming year. Amen.